Welcome, welcome, welcome to those of you here inside the building. You guys are the <clears throat> you guys are the the brave Minnesotans. You guys are the smart ones. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Wonderful. It's good to be here together. And man, this has been uh, it's been a, a great uh, weekend. I know for me and my family, a good time to relax and to grow uh, together. I hope that's the case for you as well. Uh, thank you so much for joining us online as well. Uh, we are in a series that we're calling the Body of Christ, and specifically, we're looking at how it is that we can, within the Body of Christ, that we can uh, care for one another. And last week, we talked about how it is that we can be people who receive care, who willingly and courageously, I would say, are willing to say, I, I need help, I need prayer, I need people to walk with me, to support me in this journey of finding and following Jesus. And uh, today we're going to look at that even further. You may remember that the very first uh, Sunday, so a couple weeks ago, we used the context of Moses uh, to kind of dive into a little uh, bit of uh, the, uh, the relationship that we should have here in the church, in the body of Christ. And specifically, we looked at the relationship between Moses and his father-in-law, which turned out to be a very fruitful uh, relationship, as we saw. <clears throat> well, we're going to look at Moses again. There's so much about Moses. I mean, really, I could, we could be a church about Moses and never run out of things to talk about uh, here at North Haven. Uh, but I want to underline a little bit more about who Moses was and what Moses went through. So <clears throat> thousands of years ago, if you had been walking through the ancient land of Midian, you may have come across an 80-year-old man and this 80-year-old man would have been herding sheep, a shepherd, very similar to other shepherds that you probably would have saw time and time again. This wouldn't have struck you as anything out of the ordinary because there wouldn't have been anything remotely remarkable about this man, this 80-year-old shepherd. It would have just seemed like another lonely shepherd in the wilderness, and it never would have crossed your mind, never would have been a thought, an inkling in your mind that this lonely shepherd who had been herding sheep in the wilderness in Midian for the last 40 years was once Pharaoh's, Egyptian Pharaoh's adopted grandson. <clears throat> You see, the Moses that you and I know today, that we talk about, that we celebrate, that we make movies about, this Moses that we talk about and learn about in Sunday school is very different from the Moses the Egyptians knew for the first 40 years of his life. Very different. As we, um, most of us are aware, Moses was not born an Egyptian. He was actually an Israelite. He was born, rather, into an enslaved Hebrew family. We know this. And right away, his life was in danger. Remind you that Pharaoh, at the time that Moses was born, had demanded that all Hebrew boys, that they were to be killed. A lot of it was population control. 
And then through a series of events, Moses was spared and eventually then raised by Pharaoh's daughter as her own son. Now, a lot of this, again, is commonplace for those of you who didn't even grow up in the church. This is something that you know and understand. So he was raised as an Egyptian, and he was given every single accommodation that not only Egyptians, but then royal Egyptians were given. In Acts 7.22, in the New Testament, it says that Moses... Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and in action. So there is every reason, every single reason to believe that Moses' future was bright. He had spent 40 years in this reality, in the lavishings of, of, of the Egyptian royal environment. But then, as most of us know, things took a turn, right? We know the story. One day, Moses was, was, was hanging out amongst the land there, and, and he came across something. He saw one of his people. See, Moses knew that he was uh, a, a Hebrew, that he was an Israelite. That wasn't a surprise to him. And he witnesses then this Hebrew uh, man being beaten savagely by an Egyptian. And so Moses, as we might remember, he couldn't contain himself, right? And so he intervened. He got in the middle of it, and because of that intervention, that Egyptian's life was, was taken. And so now Moses realizes what he's done. He's killed this Egyptian, and many people knew it was him and who did it. And he feared for his life and he decided to flee. Because in Exodus chapter 2, verse 15, it says, When Pharaoh heard what Moses had done, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian. Now, check out this picture. Just give you a little bit of a map as to where Midian is. Now, you may be familiar with this, you may not, but you can see there where Egypt was. The, one of the central hubs of that known known world, and Moses then went above and beyond his retreat and went to the wilderness in Midian. So it was there then in the Midian wilderness that Moses then decided to start a family. I'm going to start a family, and I'm also going to get a job as a shepherd. So the life the life that he was now living, this life of a shepherd was very different than the one that he had originally had. Can we all agree on this? Instead of being a royal prince in one of the most prosperous regions of the then known world, he was instead a family man and a herder of sheep. Now for some of you, that sounds really relaxing. But what a stark contrast from the first 40 years of his life. So here he is at 40 years old. Moses is going through a midlife crisis. Moses then spends the next 40 years doing not much more than moving sheep from one place to another. And now 40 years have passed, and Moses is now an 80-year-old shepherd. Egypt, that, that lavish lifestyle that he experienced for the first 40 years of his life is now a distant memory. 
And I'm sure that many of us can relate to how Moses, I'm sure, must have felt. Now, there's no evidence of this in Scripture, so I'm conjecturing, of course, but he was a human being nonetheless. I'm wondering if after spending 40 years as, uh, as an Egyptian, but not only as an Egyptian, but a royal Egyptian, and then spending the next 40 years as a shepherd in the Midian wilderness, I, I would imagine that he had thoughts where he believed that, one, he was nobody special, that, two, there was nothing really to write home about, and that he was really nothing of any significance. And then one day, we know the story, right? Again, even, this is one of those stories, one of those, one of those uh, uh, pivotal moments in Scripture that many people know about. Moses came upon Mount Horeb on the outskirts of the Midian wilderness, and it was there that God reveals himself to Moses in the form of a burning bush. Now, this is one of those things, too, that we read, that we conjecture, we think about, but we don't really consider. Think about that for a second. Would it be, would it be um, you think about all the wildfires that have happened over the course of this last year, would it have been a huge shock to Moses to have witnessed uh, shrubs on fire? Probably not. He had probably seen something like that. But this wasn't just a bush on fire. This was a bush on fire but not consumed by the flames. Think about that. Think how awe-inspiring that must have been for Moses in that moment. The level of intrigue he had initially until he realized that this was God. So God reveals something to Moses. You see, despite Moses' exile from Egypt, 40 years as an Egyptian, as a royal Egyptian, and then now spending the next 40 years as a shepherd in the Midian wilderness, having exiled himself from Egypt and wandering through the wilderness, God still had a plan. God had decided that Moses was the one to not only return to Egypt, to not only go to some sort of uh, kind of sick reunion of sorts, but also to free his people, specifically to free his people, the Israelites. However, Moses had a very different perception of himself. God was very certain. He was very sure of who Moses was and what Moses needed to do, but Moses didn't see it that way. God kept calling Moses to something important, but Moses saw himself as, as pretty insignificant. Again, I hope that one of the coolest things about Scripture, and, and this is something that I always try to bring to the table whenever we have these moments, is to, is to see ourselves in these stories, to connect in a very visceral way. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 11, Moses says this to God. Imagine saying this to God. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Now, maybe God hasn't uh, specifically called you to, to free uh, the Swansons out of Wisconsin. But if he did, I would imagine that, that that would be a very similar response. Not convinced that God had the right person. Moses gave God excuse after excuse. Let's look at these excuses. They're up here on the screen. One, I'm nobody, he says. 
And then Moses says, what if they don't believe me? Then he says, no one will want to listen to me. And then the last thing that Moses says to guys is just flat out, please just send somebody else. Can you relate to this? I bet you you can. Even though Moses perceived his own significance, he was so certain of his own insignificance and his lack of experience and his lack of ability, God instead saw through that veneer and saw someone prepared and ready to meet the task. Now let's fast forward a little bit. So we got 40 years as a royal Egyptian, and then he runs away and spends the next 40 years in the Midian wilderness as a shepherd. Max Lucado, in one of his books, he, he kind of gives a comparative to Moses, and it helps, again, kind of bring this into something that we can relate to and understand. He gives a parallel where Moses was once a, a, a business tycoon, a CEO in charge of a large business, and now was a janitor in that same business, and that God reveals himself in a mop bucket. But let's fast forward. Moses eventually goes back to Egypt. He heeds God's call, and through a series of amazing events, finally he's able to free his people, the Israelites. However, as we remember, the Egyptians pursue, and everything then comes to a head at the shores of the Red Sea. The Israelites miraculously cross dry land, but the Egyptians try to follow to get those Israelites back, and they're swallowed up by the waters once the Israelites reach safe shores. But instead of the Israelites being ushered into the land promised to them because of their sin, and we're not going to get into those details, but because of the sin that they incurred after the Red Sea, they were forced to wander the desert for the next 40 years. So here you got Moses, a triad of 40. You got 40 years as an Egyptian prince. All the lavishes of, of, of the, one of the most uh, uh, prominent areas of the world at that time he experienced and had full access to 40 years, and then he runs away, and he spends the next 40 years as a shepherd. And then God calls him to free the Israelites, and he goes and he does that, and then he spends the next 40 years as a wilderness tour guide. But in all of this, in all of this, God was never for one moment surprised. So Moses probably, again conjecture, but he was human nonetheless, for the first 40 years, he probably most likely expected to always live in the lap of luxury. Why wouldn't he? And then for the second 40 years, he believed he would probably never amount to much more than a shepherd, because that's who he was, that's what he did. And then right before his third 40 years hit, he was probably scared to death at the prospect of returning to Egypt and leading a nation. And in a way, Moses was right about himself. 
He was as imperfect and as ordinary as the next person. But God knew something about Moses that Moses clearly didn't. Moses was the right person for such a time as this. You see, just like Moses, God uses mine and your past trials. He uses my and your setbacks. He uses mine and your experiences and our hang-ups to minister and to care for others. See, throughout Moses' journey, the ups and downs of his entire life, his trials, his setbacks, his experiences, his hang-ups, they helped him, and they help us grow in, very, in three very important ways. We don't often understand that our trials and our setbacks and our hang-ups and our experiences actually can, and that's the pivotal word there, can, because it's not a given that they will, but it's an opportunity because they can provide three critical things that can help us to be prepared for what God calls us to next. So the first is this, personal humility. Personal humility. So let's, let's again, let's, let's look at how Moses learned humility before God called him to free the Israelites. See, after Moses has spent 40 years as an Egyptian a royal, and he then found himself in the wilderness. So then Moses was in the desert. He was not in a palace anymore. Moses was leading animals. He wasn't leading a nation. I'm sure he had high hopes and high aspirations of what he could and, and possibly was going to do if he had stayed in Egypt. And then Moses wasn't taking orders from a king. He wasn't taking orders from the king of Egypt. He was taking orders from his father-in-law. Talk about humbling. You see, it is, it is through our learned humbleness that God, God reveals his plan and his purpose for our lives. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, it says this, Humble yourselves, therefore... Under the mighty hand of God, so that, so that at the proper time, at the time that God has deemed, he may exalt you. And that isn't that, that you are praised, it isn't that you are celebrated, but it's that God will raise you up to what it is that he calls you to. Humbleness. Humbleness is a necessary ingredient for that moment where God reveals what it is that he's called you and I to. So personal humility. Personal humility is something that we can learn from our experiences, our setbacks, our trials, and our hang-ups. The second thing that we can develop through those, again, can, key word, can, is empathy for others. And this is huge. And if I could be so blunt, this is incredibly lacking in the world today and also the church. Empathy is a word that gets quite confused, I believe, with compassion. Compassion is a wonderful word. But empathy is a very specific, different thing. 
So how is it that we can understand the distinction between these two words? Well, as I am prone to do, I love looking at definitions. So let's look at a couple of definitions. Compassion, how would you define compassion? Well, Webster's would define compassion as sympathetic pity and concern for the sufferings or misfortunes of others. Makes sense? Empathy, however, empathy is defined as the ability to understand, and this is the key point here, share the feelings of another. So it's all, it's all fine and dandy to read definitions, but what, what is really the thing that sets these two words apart? The biggest definition between compassion and empathy is this. Compassion is done at a distance. Empathy is done in relationship. Compassion is done at a distance. And it's good to have compassion. It's good to feel and experience compassion. And we can feel and experience compassion for many things and many people and situations, and that can prompt us to do some wonderful things for the glory of God. But empathy is a different thing because empathy means that you are getting busy with relationship. You are willingly putting yourself in the fire saying, I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to carry this with you. I'm going to support you. I've, I've shared this distinction as well before, the, definition, or the distinction between empathy and sympathy. Sympathy would be a, a, you know, someone jumped off or fell off of a, of a cruise ship and they were in the water in, in certain peril. Sympathy would be to... Uh, would be to, to um, uh, uh, throw out a, a life preserver. Empathy would be to jump in. You see, contrary to popular and cultural opinion, trials, setbacks, experiences, and hang-ups, those things don't disqualify us from serving God. They don't disqualify us from serving God and ministering to others. But the enemy does a great job of convincing us that that's the case, doesn't it? Whenever we start getting that nudge from God, hey, I'm leading you to do this, or I'm wanting you to do this, and we know those moments when they happen. A lot of times, the enemy comes in and starts reminding us of those setbacks, reminding us of those experiences, those hang-ups, those trials, and saying, you're the wrong person. God has no idea what he's talking about. Quite the contrary. It is the trials and setbacks and hang-ups that actually make it possible for you and I to do these things. Because when you and I live the ups and downs of our lives, we can become more aware of these ups and downs in others. Our eyes are open then to what others are going through. It makes us better listeners, and we're able to connect with others that are going through the same things that we have. Empathy for others is something that we can experience in tremendous quantity when we go through trials and setbacks and hang-ups and experiences in our lives. So humility, 
personal humility and empathy for others. And then the third thing that we can develop through our trials, setbacks, experiences, and hang-ups is dependence on God. And this is a phrase that, that we hear and we say a lot, depend on God, but it's one thing to actually live it. Dependence on God. Remember the excuses Moses gave God when God called him to go back to Egypt to free the Israelites. Remember these excuses? We looked at them earlier. He says, I'm nobody. He says, what if they don't believe me? He says, no one will want to listen to me. And then, frankly, he just comes out and says, please just send somebody else. What was God's response to each of those statements? He says, I will be with you. I will be with you. In this moment, Moses' lack of dependence on God and ours too, that is the unwillingness to see things from God's perspective. And that unwillingness, that unwillingness, it comes from an understandable, but it comes from the fear of the unknown. It's the intention of constantly looking back to the familiar rather than to where God is leading us. So instead to live one's life in dependence on God, under the banner of dependence on the Almighty, it means to take your cue from the one leading. It means, it means that not having to know. It means not having to know the when, where, why, and how. And that's what we want to know, right? Whenever we make plans or whenever somebody says, hey, let's do this or let's do that, those are things that we want to know. We want to know the when, we want to know the where, we want to know the why, and we want to know the how. Imagine going on a vacation and not having all those things solidified. We desperately want to know those things. But depending on God, depending on God means that we do what Jesus says, that we are to come before him as little children, dependent on him for everything. I've made this analogy before, but, but I envy my, my kids sometimes, especially my son. So my son, he has a phone for emergencies and never uses it. I don't know why we pay the monthly fee, but nonetheless, he has it. He's 10 years old. My daughter, she's crossed that threshold. She's on her phone all the time now, right? She's 14. My son's not quite there yet. So when he's in a car, he has no idea what's going on. He has no idea where we're going. I mean, he has some semblance, but he has no idea how we're getting there, how long the drive is going to be. He has no idea why we turn this way or why we're turning that way, why we're stopping here, why we're stopping there. We get to the destination, and we start getting out of the car, and his thought is, oh, I guess this is it. That is how it is that we're supposed to approach our relationship with God. That's not ignorance. That's trusting the Almighty. It is not having to know the when, the where, the how, and the why. It's only focusing on the what 
That is what God's calling us to and the who, who's calling us. So once again, God uses my past trials. He uses my setbacks. He uses my experiences. He uses my hang-ups to minister and to care for others. This means that regardless of those things, regardless of your trials and your setbacks, your past experiences, your hang-ups, God has a plan for you and I in profound ways. And here's the really good news. You don't have to understand that. Where does this come from? Where does this come from, this, this notion that we have to understand everything? How much, how much more wonderful and freeing would a life be if we trusted God more and demanded understanding less? We don't have to understand it. We only need to accept it. Let's quick look at how that interchange with God and Moses concluded, because I find this interesting. So Moses has this interchange with God. He sees this miraculous vision, this bush on fire, but not being consumed by the fires, and then it's talking to him. I'm sure he wondered whether he was going insane. But he knew it was God. And God was giving him a clear direction. And Moses was trying to cut him off at every turn, right? But God at the very end says, hey, listen, this is it. This is what I'm calling you to. Go and do it. And then in Exodus chapter 3, verse 18, it says, Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, his boss, and said to him, quote, Let me return to my own people. It'd be one thing if there was a period there, but that's not where it ends. He says, let me return to my own people to see if any of them are still alive. Even still, even still Moses wasn't sure. He wasn't sure about about the when. He wasn't sure about the where. He wasn't sure about the why and the how. He wasn't even convinced that God had it right. There seems to be a part of Moses that was hoping that he'd get to Egypt and find out that the Israelites just, you know, decided to move on. And Moses would be able to, like, oh, all right. Have you ever, you ever been in a situation like that? God makes it clear what he wants you to do, and you go and you're kind of hoping that, oh, maybe, maybe they won't be there when I, when I get to the house. The point here is that regardless of the fact that Moses was not sure, he wasn't sure of the when, he wasn't sure of the, of the where, he wasn't sure of the, of the why, he wasn't sure of the how, he focused on the what and the who, and that was enough. The point is, is that Moses went. God pointed, and Moses acted. And for some of you, well, I would say all of you, God is pointing to a very specific plan for your life. He's either made it clear and you followed, focusing on the what and the who, or he is pointing and he's been pointing for some time, and you've been giving God those same excuses that Moses gave him. I'm nobody special. 
No one will listen to me. God, just please send somebody else. And for some of you here this morning, here in this place, and and then watching uh, online, God may be actually pointing you very specifically to Stephen ministry. We've been going through this over the last few weeks. We've been talking about this new ministry that's starting here, an opportunity to provide intentional, visceral care for people in this church and community that are in desperate need of this. This is an opportunity to minister intentionally to others using your trials, using your setbacks, your hang-ups, and your past experiences. Let's take a quick moment and check out this video to see a story of Stephen Ministry in Action. My father-in-law passed away, and then uh, one week later, my wife uh, died, uh, had a massive heart attack at the age of 47. I was making the arrangements at church, of course, with our funeral coordinator, and the pastor uh, stepped in. And so during the conversation of setting up the uh, funeral arrangements, uh, he suggested uh, that I get a Stephen minister. So it wasn't um, anything that I had thought about at that point and uh, uh, didn't really think that I, I needed one. Um, so I'm, I'm a deacon. I'm also a Stephen minister. I don't need a Stephen minister. Uh, but I was grieving. And uh, so it was uh, that following Monday where I did actually meet my Stephen minister. And uh, it was anyway, he asked, uh, you know, just general, how you doing? Uh, you know, uh, did you need anything kind of questions? And then it was that first probing question. Uh, Tell me how you really feel. And then it was just like, blah! You know? <laughs> it just everything comes out, all the floodgates uh, come, that wall just uh, shatters down. And then that, uh, was such a uh, a burden off my shoulders. It was unbelievable. Uh, he was a football player uh, when he was in, in high school, and then he also played college football. And uh, to see this tough guy uh, uh, asking me these very uh, soft and tender questions, uh, you know, is uh, kind of what helped break down that that initial tough guy wall that I had up, I can I can expose some of those uh, some of those inner weaknesses that I was going what I was experiencing at that time uh, because this tough guy <laughs> was uh, was so tender, was so uh, caring, was so loving, and uh, seeing how how my Stephen minister reached out. He he. Uh, as he kept reaching those, those questions that were making me probe. Uh, and I, how's your heart? And how are you, how is your mind thinking? Uh, those those uh, questions, I just saw Jesus uh, uh, asking me those same questions, reaching out to uh, give me a hug. Uh. There's this beautiful moment in the life of Moses 
right before he dies, he's standing on, on the top of Mount Nebo in Deuteronomy 34. And this is what it says. There the Lord showed him the whole land. Now the, the Israelites, Moses, had now entered or come across the promised land. And Moses is not allowed to enter, but the rest of the Israelites are able to, to go in. So Moses shows him the land. And then, or God shows Moses the land, and then, and then God says to him, he says, this is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And here's, here's what I'm trying to point us to here. Even though Moses may not have understood 40 years previously the when, the where, the why, and the how, those things were more than clear at that moment. All of his trials... All of his setbacks, all of his experiences and hang-ups. Moses was a real dude, just like you and me. He was someone that struggled, that longed, that was disappointed, that hurt, that succeeded and failed, just like you and me. All of these things made him the perfect person for God's calling. And this is true of you too. This is true of you too. Even though you may, na- you may not see it now, you may, not, you may not understand the when, the where, the why, and the how, but that's okay as long as we focus on the what, what God is calling you to, and who is calling you. 1 Peter chapter 5.10, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God is making you and I, he's making us fully prepared and complete to do the work he's called us to. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, for your continued guidance and direction in our lives, how you never give up pointing the way for us to go. Lord, and you, you are in the process or you've made it clear to each of us your plan and purpose for our lives. And we've either resisted it, we've done really good at ignoring it, or we've trusted it and we've stepped forward focusing on what we're called to and who's calling us. I pray for each person in this room, for those that are watching online, that we would have that same determination. Even though Moses was very unsure of himself, just as most of us are very unsure of ourselves, Moses focused on the what and the who, and that was enough. Trusting in a God who will never fail, who will never disappoint, who will always lead the way. I pray that that would be our goal and our mission moving forward in the days and weeks and months to come. We pray in your name. Amen. For those of you interested in wanting to find out more about Stephen Ministry, Pastor Don as well as Meredith are going to be out in the commons and they are going to be, they have a table set up. They would love to answer any questions. Real simple. For those of you that are watching online, you can email Pastor Don at don at northhavenchurch.org. It's on the website. Or you can email Meredith, M E 
R-E-D-I-T-H at NorthHavenChurch.org and they'll certainly answer whatever questions you have. Thank you so much. I love you all. God bless.